To understand the creator, you really have to look back at Monsters, Gareth Edwards' first film. Monsters was made on a budget so small the whole thing was technically a tax write-off for its production company, and it takes place years after most monster movies finish. It follows Calder, a jaded journalist, and Sam, a disaffected Nepo baby, as they try to get out of Central America before the whole place is shut down by the annual migration of alien creatures who wreak havoc upon the Earth. It's not so much an alien invasion as a yearly natural disaster. Monsters is a road movie about the way we accept and adapt to massive existential changes in society, and apart from the two leads, the cast were entirely local non-actors, reacting to vague prompts from Edwards, who was camera operating as well as directing, writing, and later doing the film's VFX. Monsters has some really great, tense, and frighteningly normal moments. It's really been vindicated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing climate disaster, and the way that truly apocalyptic events have just kind of been normalized. The film takes advantage of the natural beauty of its Central American locations, both crumbling ancient pyramids and chaotic houses full of normal human junk. Monsters is not a perfect movie, but it also kind of justifies most of its faults. The film has an uneven pace full of restless static moments where Calder and Sam wait for transport, or they travel, or they fill in time, but that works in a mid-apocalyptic road movie. A lot of the film's improvised dialogue doesn't really go anywhere, but once again, the film itself facilitates this. Sam and Calder don't start out on great terms, since Sam is being coerced into going back to the States by her father, who is also Calder's boss, so Calder resents having to babysit her. Whitney Abel's performance as Sam is pretty lackluster, but Sam is such a disaffected character in a highly traumatized world that she almost gets away with it. Monsters works because it is small. It's a human story within a much larger world, and everything about Edward's approach to making the film supported this. He used a tiny skeleton crew with improvising actors interacting with real people in real locations, later enhanced by CGI. And all of that comes together to show how small and all-consuming human life can be, that even as the world ends around us, we'll still be worried about work and taxes and whether someone likes us back. And Edward's rough-and-tumble filmmaking is aggressively and almost subconsciously human. By not planning things out, by finding them in the moment and then refining everything in post, Edwards is making films the same way we make memories. That's what Monsters captures in its best moments. Humanity, small and restless in the face of unknowable tragedy. The creator is about Robot Jesus Christ. This is a special bonus episode of Going Rogue, about Rogue One director Gareth Edwards' new film, The Creator. I'm Tansy Gardam, and this is going to be much looser than our normal episodes. It's part review, part analysis, part pushing back against a media narrative, but I have a lot of thoughts about this movie and the way it's being talked about. Full warning, this episode will spoil The Creator if you haven't seen it, and it's also going to spoil Monsters, because I think that film really is the blueprint for The Creator and its successes and failures are writ large in the creator. The initial idea for the creator came to Gareth Edwards on a cross-country road trip. In a recent interview with the British Film Institute, he described it like this, quote, It was after Star Wars. I needed a break and we decided to visit my girlfriend's parents in Iowa from LA. It's a four-day drive. At some point, I was probably a bit antisocial and just put some music on. 
I was listening to probably Hans Zimmer or something. I was looking out the window and all this farmland was going by. I wanted to do a film about robots next. I was just toying with the idea. Then this factory goes past. It has what looked like a Japanese logo. And I was like, I wonder what they're doing in there. Maybe robots. Imagine being a robot and you stepped outside into this farmland and you saw the sky and the grass for the first time. What would that feel like? That's a cool little scene in a movie, but not my movie. I don't know where that goes. Then about a moment later, I thought, you know what it could be? It could be that people are coming to kill the robots and one of them escapes. Yeah, that could be it. You know what else? It could be like Lone Wolf and Cub and then it's a little kid. For those who don't know, Lone Wolf and Cub is a classic manga series about a disgraced former samurai who wanders the land with his infant son. If that sounds familiar, it was a big influence on the early development of The Mandalorian, and it's also lovingly parodied in Bob's Burgers. Gareth Edwards doesn't enjoy writing. He describes it as the world's worst homework. But he wrote a first draft of the script while on holiday in Thailand, before handing it over to Hussein Amini, who wrote the 2011 film Drive, and who was also one of the writers on the Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi. Another lone wolf and cub kind of story, although the version of Obi-Wan Kenobi that was released was not Amini's version, because he was fired in early 2020 due to disagreements about the series' tone. I can't imagine what Amini and Edwards talked about. Hussein Amini did his own draft of the creator before leaving for other projects. Then, Chris Weitz came on board. Weitz had worked with Edwards before on Rogue One, and according to Edwards, Weitz really brought a dark sense of humour to the creator, as well as a sense of spirituality. The final writing credits on the film are story by Gareth Edwards and screenplay by Gareth Edwards and Chris Weitz, with an and not an ampersand, meaning they worked separately. Hussein Amini has an additional literary material credit, which is a new type of credit introduced by the Writers Guild in 2022. It basically means you worked on this, but you didn't meet the thresholds to get a screenplay or story credit. It's also not required to be a big card, like story and screenplay credits. I actually sat through the credits on the creator and I couldn't see Amini listed, so I'm not sure where it goes in the credit roll. You can opt out of an additional literary materials credit, and it doesn't come with any residuals, but it is a way to acknowledge writers who do work on a film, but their work doesn't necessarily make it onto the screen. So, with the world's worst homework done, Gareth Edwards was able to actually start making the film. And after two big, constrained studio franchise films, he wanted to go back to the way he'd filmed Monsters. Here he is, explaining the difference. My very first film, before I got that opportunity, was a very, very low-budget movie. It was virtually no money we had for the budget. And Monsters, so you'd, right? Yeah. And so you'd expect um, there to be loads of problems having no money. And instead, it was this incredibly liberating creative process that I ended up loving. Mm. And then you get to have, like, hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> and you think, oh, my God, we can do anything. It's going to be amazing. Like, we did that with nothing. We can have, And you find you actually can't do anything. And that, in a weird way, there's more limitations to some extent because you have this giant machine, you know, that is built making this film and it allows you to do really great moments like big spectacle and stuff. But then smaller, more intimate moments, very kind of inefficient because you've got, you know, hundreds of people and it's just a conversation between two people in a room. 
A lot has been said about the potentially game-changing production choices that Edwards made on The Creator. Shooting on a high-end consumer camera, working with a deliberately small team, editing the film entirely before beginning VFX, putting lights on boom poles so they could move easily with the actors. All of this resulting in a film that looks like it was made for a lot more than its $86 million budget. And I want to start with the things that they did on The Creator that I think are really great practices that should be adopted more widely on both studio and indie films. Number one, small teams. Not only does this mean everyone is much more involved with the film and keep the budget lower on a purely human resources level, it's also what made The Creator's location shoots possible. Edward's argument was... When you weigh up the price of building a set versus the flights you know, the cost of flights for a crew to go to the greatest place on earth. If you've got a small enough crew, it's cheaper to just go there. And so we were like, we're going to have a small crew and just go to all these great, you know, wonders of the world type thing. And the creator really does look great. Shot on location in East and Southeast Asia with seamless near-future CGI enhancements, taking advantage of these striking natural locations and also human-built locations. Towns, farms, bridges, cities, all of these bigger and better than anything a set designer could build because they've been built over generations for their particular environment and particular purposes. The film also says something by showing robots living in much more recognisably human environments in New Asia than the irradiated concrete wasteland that humans have retreated to in the US. That said, it's definitely worth flagging that part of the reason the creator looks so believably like a grimy sci-fi future is because downbeat sci-fi dystopias have long been Asia-coded, and the creator stumbles headfirst into tropes that could most kindly be called Orientalist and more accurately be called racist and dehumanising. Because even though the film is about how robots are just like us, how they have dreams and hopes and can love, they are tangibly different from humans and all robots in the film are played by Asian actors, meaning the film knowingly or unknowingly projects an undercurrent of Asians are not really human. And a lot of this actually tracks back to the fact that another influence on the creator was 70s and 80s Vietnam War films, films which often turn the conflict and the lives of Vietnamese people into a backdrop for American stories. The robots and people of New Asia are consistently shown to be more human than the often psychotic American soldiers, but they also have vastly less screen time and less nuance. The Vietnam War parallels in The Creator are clear, but in the same way they're clear in Return of the Jedi. Well-meaning, but seriously simplistic. Another idea of Edwards that I think should be taken on by more film studios is locking down the edit before starting VFX work, which shows a basic respect for the visual effects process that a lot of studios frankly lack. The industry is full of stories of overworked, underpaid and burnt out visual effects artists spending months on a sequence only for it to be cut or significantly reworked. Edwards has worked in visual effects, so he has an understanding of the process that a lot of directors don't, but he also approached the VFX process on the creator almost backwards. You might remember that on Rogue One, Edwards avoided using green and blue screen wherever possible. And here he is explaining that rationale to Chris Miller back in 2016. And you say to people like on day one, I don't want any blue screen, I don't want any green screen. And everyone get, takes that the wrong way and goes, oh, he wants to build the sets. Okay, oh, that's going to be expensive, but great, yeah. 
And you go, no, 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 no. I, I just mean at the worst, we want to rotoscope around people. So we don't want to put a green behind someone. We want to put that person in a real environment and then cut around them in the computer and stick the CGI environment behind them. Because there's something about really being like, if, you, if we were filming you now and I wanted to replace that wall with something kind of red and gray, and but a totally different architectural design, it would look so much more real just shooting you now and cutting you out in the computer than if we stuck a big green thing behind you and then keyed it. It never, the, the way it bounces off the cheeks and just the ambience of the shot, it feels fake. You can sort of tell when it's happening. Edwards first developed this approach on Monsters and he carried it through to the creator. Actors would be filmed on, say, a tourist ferry and then that would later be adapted by the VFX team into a hoverboat. Enhancements and changes were made to things that were actually there, rather than designing things in pre-production, shooting empty spaces or green dots, and later filling those in in post. This is kind of the opposite of what's often thought of as the key to good visual effects, which is clear intentions and good shot design. The dinosaurs in Jurassic Park hold up so well because every shot has the best version of the dino for that shot, whether that's a puppet, animatronics, or CGI. But Gareth Edwards didn't really design any shots or VFX prior to the film. Instead, he went out, got the shots, chose his final shot, and then found the best visual effect for it. This is also part of how the film kept its budget below $90 million, because visual effects were only used when they were needed. There weren't a huge number of green screen shots that suddenly needed to be given a background. But the thing that has grabbed the most attention and the most headlines is the camera that the creator was shot on. Here's Gareth Edwards at Comic-Con. We shot the creator on a new camera, it's a Sony camera, it's called an FX3. Um, pretty much the whole movie shot on this. Um, it's a camera you can buy, Best Buy. Yeah. Um, it looks like film. Um, it's full frame, full IMAX resolution. Um, and has filmic, like, really photographic quality to it. And again, this film does look gorgeous. I saw it in IMAX, which was probably the wrong place to see it since the selling point of IMAX is the height of the screen and the creator is extremely widescreen. But Melbourne IMAX has the second largest screen in the world and the creator looked good on it. And it was shot on a camera that the guy at JB Hi-Fi tried to upsell my mum into buying. However, there is a certain amount of hype around cinema technology, particularly newer, smaller, cheaper cameras. And the appeal of something like the creator being shot on a high-end consumer camera is the idea that anyone could do it, that filmmaking is more accessible and cheaper as a result of this new technology. And digital cameras have absolutely democratised filmmaking in some ways. But a lot of the examples that people point to as anyone can make digital cinema are more complicated than just cheaper cameras equals anyone can make a movie. Sean Baker's Tangerine is often pointed to as the pinnacle of iPhone filmmaking. By shooting quick and cheap on iPhones, Baker was able to make a movie about trans sex workers on the very small budget that he was able to get for such a niche project. And shooting on an iPhone did more than just save money on camera equipment. It allowed Baker to film in smaller spaces and on the street without paying for extras or locations. But I'd argue that the main advantage of shooting Tangerine on iPhones was that it made the filmmaking process easier for the cast, many of whom weren't trained actors. 
If you've ever tried to film anything on a large camera in public, you'll know that the sight of a big camera causes something in people's ape brains to snap. They either completely shut down or they start behaving like a dickhead. And I don't have any psych studies to cite here, but I think that that reaction comes down to our social elevation of film and television as a kind of higher existence. So being captured by a film or TV camera offers us a chance to be seen on a higher plane, which either makes you incredibly anxious or it shuts off your normal inhibitions. People become self-conscious in the truest sense of the word around cameras, aware of their own body and movement in space, and oh my god, people are watching, people are going to see this, this is being recorded. But an iPhone doesn't carry that baggage. Even though they're an incredibly common recording device, they have other, more familiar purposes. If you're being filmed on an iPhone, it's usually by friends or family. So shooting a film like Tangerine on an iPhone meant that the big, intrusive lens of the camera, the observing eye, wasn't there. And because the cast were mostly playing versions of themselves, removing that big, observing camera meant that they were able to be more themselves. Don't get me wrong, using an iPhone for Tangerine was partly a choice about budget and portability, but it was also a choice about performance. And even then, the sentence, Tangerine was shot on an iPhone, leaves out a few key details, like the fact that the filmmakers used an app that allowed them to control the phone's internal camera settings, or the fact that the phone was mounted on a small handheld gimbal so it didn't rattle around in every walking shot, or the fact that an anamorphic lens adapter was fitted over the phone's camera which Sean Baker says was so pivotal to the cinematic look that he wanted that he wouldn't have bothered to make the film without it. Anamorphic lenses are my Achilles heel. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I research, I can never quite understand them or explain them. But they kind of squish an image in so that you can capture it on a smaller piece of film and then when you project it out, it becomes widescreen. Kind of. Like a lot of things in film, anamorphic lenses are a hangover from the earlier days of celluloid. But the look of an anamorphic lens is cinematic, in the same way that golden hour is cinematic, or 24 frames per second is cinematic. These things are grandfathered into what we think of as cinema. So if you put an anamorphic lens on an iPhone, you get an image that looks more cinematic than your standard iPhone footage. And on Tangerine, that entire iPhone setup with the anamorphic lens and the gimbal and the jacked internal camera settings, that was being operated by Sean Baker and his co-cinematographer Radium Chung, who are both experienced filmmakers who understand how to technically operate much more sophisticated cameras, and also how to frame the shots cinematically. So I'd argue that Baker and Chung were using the iPhone as a tool, rather than just shooting on an iPhone. On the creator, Gareth Edwards and his cinematographer Oren Soffer used a Sony FX3, mounted on a Ronin RS2 gimbal and using a 75mm anamorphic lens about 95% of the time, as well as a 42mm anamorphic for some tight interiors, and a set of rehoused vintage stills lenses that were used sparingly, mostly on drone shots and VFX plates. These lenses are not sold at Best Buy, although again, that's a bit of a sweeping statement that cuts out a lot of nuance. Using just one lens for 95% of the film is still pretty restrained. Ronan gimbals are sold at Best Buy, 
but the Ronin used on the Creator had to be customised to fit with other gear and basically used upside down, usually mounted onto a more traditional shoulder rig, but also able to be put onto a crane. The Sony FX3 at the heart of this camera setup had some real genuine selling points to the crew. It was lightweight and small, allowing Gareth Edwards to operate the camera when he wanted and to move around the space easily, picking up shots as they occurred and chasing feelings with the actors. Like an iPhone, the smaller FX3 would have been less intimidating for non-actors and for child actors like the film's star Madeleine Univoyles. The FX3 also handles low light really well, meaning the crew didn't need a large lighting and electrics department. The camera department on the creator seems to have used every trick in the book to make the film look its best, and to move as fast as Gareth Edwards' mind does. One of the behind-the-scenes images that's been doing the rounds is the film's gaffer using a fertilizer bag as a diffuser on one of their lights. Lights were also attached to boom poles so actors and cameras could move around quickly without waiting for a lighting reset. The light could move as fast as any other crew member. This is a great idea, I think it's perfect for Gareth Edwards' style, but I do want to flag that the creator is not the first film to do this. Boom lights were being used back in 2011 on The Raid by director Gareth Evans, a different guy with a very similar name. But when stories about the creator focus on the low cost of the camera, there's no discussion about the work that people did with that camera. The creator has two cinematographers, Oren Soffer, who was on set, and Greg Frazier, who was involved in the setup and prep but wasn't able to be there for the shoot because he was filming Dune Part 2. These are two very talented cinematographers, one of whom has an Oscar, who know how to get the best out of any camera by using the right lenses and lighting and framing and processes. And they were backed up by a crew full of resourceful and innovative operators, assistants, grips, gaffs and technicians. A smaller crew than most films, but a crew nonetheless. So the narrative of the creator looks like it does because it was shot on this camera, that rings really hollow to me. Because at the end of the day, the camera does not decide the film's look. It is a tool used by people. And when you're using a tool, you are using your skills, not just the tech. I could buy the same guitar as Paul McCartney, but I'm not going to write Blackbird. And if that example sounds familiar, it's because of Glass Onion. Serenading me with my song? On the guitar Paul wrote it on. <laughs> I know, legit, right? But look at your face, it was worth it. Oh. My friends, my friends, all oh my old... Steve Yedlin is the cinematographer behind all of Ryan Johnson's films, including Glass Onion, and Yedlin has long argued against the reification of particular cameras. That Paul McCartney guitar example is one that he often goes to, and I just think it's neat that Ryan Johnson put it in the movie. Yedlin has been getting deep in the guts of digital filmmaking for the past 15 years, teaching himself to code so he's able to craft and manipulate digital images. If he shot something on a Sony FX3, it would look completely different to the creator. And while I am all for cinematic tools becoming cheaper and lighter to allow new approaches to filmmaking, that doesn't necessarily make filmmaking cheaper, because you still need the additional gear and the people to operate it. And I think the real clarity on this point comes from Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, who says that despite cheaper tech, filmmaking is as expensive as it's ever been that there's no big-budget department store 199 white t-shirt version of making a film. Every film is some version of a really fancy $300 t-shirt from Calvin Klein, because films are massive operations that need to be designed and crafted by artists. 
The creator looks incredible, considering it costs less than $90 million to make. But it still cost more than $85 million. And I think breathlessly reporting that the creator was shot on a camera from Best Buy is at best oversimplification and at worst actively misleading because it cuts the artists who use that camera out of the story. So with all that said, is the creator a good film? Well, the creator is pretty startlingly similar to Edward's two franchise films, Godzilla and Rogue One. It opens with the dramatic death of a woman, a mother whose husband feels responsibility for her demise, and then it flashes forward to years later and introduces a jaded soldier protagonist who has opted out of the conflict that led to that initial woman's death, but then is lured back for a mission that promises to reunite the protagonist with the family they lost all those years ago. The supposedly simple mission becomes far more complicated after a major action set piece reveals the level of threat they're dealing with. Potentially apocalyptic stakes are introduced, and now the protagonist's loyalties are split between the mission they started out on and their duty to mankind. But the creator breaks with Edward's tradition, and rather than just a threat like Godzilla or the Death Star, it also reveals a lack of threat, since the superweapon in the creator turns out to be Alfie, a child robot who can control technology and is prophesized as the robot messiah, but is really just a little guy. John David Washington's Joshua keeps Alfie close because she knows the location of Joshua's supposedly dead wife, Maya, an AI roboticist who he married while deep undercover in robot-friendly New Asia. The ethics of Joshua marrying Maya whilst undercover and therefore lying to her for their entire relationship is never really addressed. But Joshua wants Maya back and Alfie seems to be the only way to find her. So Joshua is essentially stuck behind enemy lines being hunted by both humans and robots while trying to get the truth about Maya out of a reluctant child. This goal sits on top of a film that meanders between striking locations and visuals but never feels purposeful. It's more of a series of set pieces than a story. Things occur, then there's a reason to go to the next location, then more things occur. I actually had a very similar experience watching The Creator to the one I had with Rogue One. The pacing was a real problem for me on my first watch, but the second time around, because I knew where the film was headed, it didn't jar me as much. I could just sit back and let it kind of wash over me. One of Gareth Edwards' favorite movies is called Baraka by Ron Freak. It's a purely visual documentary that shows the rhythms of life across the world. Edwards has described Baraka as being like if God made a film, saying, quote, I always thought if there was a little storyline in that and add in some science fiction, that would be the greatest movie ever made. That was the real goal. And on second watch, the creator did almost wash over me the way Baraka does. But the first time around, that little storyline wasn't enough to keep the film going between visuals. And over time, some of those visuals also have diminishing returns. There are so many explosions that towards the end of the film, they just feel like nothing. An entire city is blown up, but it's almost a cutaway gag from the main action on the Nomad space station, where Alfie and Joshua are inevitably destroying the Death Star together. Inevitability is another word I'd use for this film. Of course Joshua protects Alfie, of course they bond, of course he loses faith in the US, of course he becomes her father and helps Alfie destroy the Nomad space station and save all the robots and most humans. It's so inevitable that the script doesn't feel the need to really invest you in it. And the core of the film is also the core of a lot of its problems. 
because Joshua and Alfie's relationship just doesn't hit the lone wolf and cub highs of Joel and Ellie, Logan and Laura, or Mando and Baby Yoda. And part of the problem is the story, the fact that Joshua has an ulterior motive for keeping Alfie around well past the film's midpoint. And part of that is the execution, particularly the dialogue. This film has some dialogue in it. And that dialogue feels really out of step with Edward's style as a director. It's Aaron Sorkin look at me dialogue, which grates against the otherwise hyper-naturalistic style. There are glimpses of a more compelling oppositional dynamic between Joshua and Alfie in the moments that feel truest to Edwards as a director. You really feel the characters much more when Joshua is just trying to get Alfie in a goddamn car than when they're discussing the nature of heaven. There was apparently a five-hour first assembly cut of this film, and more importantly, a two-hour, 15-minute test screening version, which got contradictory notes from audiences, which the test screening organisers said probably just came from the film being a bit too long. So Edwards and his editors endeavoured to cut 10 to 15 minutes. But rather than agonising over which minutes to lose, they instead rebuilt the film from scratch and left out anything they didn't remember, retelling the story by its most salient points. And that memory cut was the two-hour version that went into cinemas. When the team reviewed the 15 minutes they'd unknowingly taken out, it was all things they didn't mind losing. But when you're close to a film, when you've worked on it, you have a different relationship to the story and the characters. You've known everything from scratch, from its roughest form, and you've helped to shape these people and their journeys. You are invested in a way that first-time viewers just aren't. So the way you remember the film will be different. Your memory will unknowingly fill gaps because you know the film backwards. And I can't help wondering if some of the material that was cut was the building blocks of Alfie and Joshua's relationship. The tiny moments that add up into a compelling father-daughter story but can easily be forgotten when you're recounting the film. I said at the start of this episode that the creator is about robot Jesus Christ. And I stand by that. Alfie was created but not born by Maya, with knowledge passed on from her all-powerful AI creator father, Namada, who is spoken of but never seen, while Joshua has to do a Joseph and raise this child as his own so that she can fulfil her destiny and save her persecuted people, and likely die in the process. Alfie's technology-controlling powers are even activated when she puts her hands together in prayer. And in my opinion, that's just too big a story. Because the stakes are so high, the smaller relationships that the film is meant to be built on don't land, so there's no foundation. And it has to be said, this film's kind of come out at entirely the wrong time. It presents AI as a persecuted minority, unjustly hated by humanity. But right now there's a lot of very valid questions about artificial intelligence and its application in the future. There's a joke early on in The Creator, where an LA resident said she watched a video online that said AI set off a nuke because it wanted to take our jobs. And I mean, the real problem is human greed and humans choosing to replace other humans with AI, but my girl's kind of got a point. But throughout The Creator, humans, and particularly anti-AI Americans, are so clearly the aggressors in this war that everything becomes one-dimensional. There is some real potential for nuance in representations of AI. If a robot kills on human orders, can we hold that robot responsible, or is it just a tool? If it becomes self-aware and then kills a human in self-defense, is it justified in doing so? 
And one of the most affecting images in the film is almost a cutaway in a robot factory run by Joshua's old partner and his robot girlfriend. You see these humanoid robots being 3D printed, layers of skin laid over plastic and circuit boards, and the sound design is really evocative of garment manufacturing, of sewing machines and steamers. It's a really great subtle choice. And because the robots are being printed in one piece, from the head down, they already have faces and they seem conscious, aware that they are being made. And some of them look terrified at that idea. They're being given life and they don't want it. These are the sort of robots who could walk out into a field in the Midwest and see the sky and the grass for the first time. Maybe even to a bit of Hans Zimmer's score. But Gareth Edwards doesn't know where that story goes. So the film isn't about them. Even when Alfie emerges from the concrete bunker she spent her whole life in and sees the world for the first time, she's kind of fine with it. There's also a sort of muddle to the world building. Alfie is a one-of-a-kind robot who can grow like a real child, but that's only made clear well after we meet her. When she's introduced, she's one of many robots we've seen, just smaller. Her powers are only introduced well after we meet her, in a pretty good scene where she keeps turning on the TV to watch cartoons. Again, this film is at its best when Alfie is just being a kid and Joshua is a frustrated adult. Actually, this film is at its best when animals are killing cops, which happens in two separate scenes, but the compelling Alfie-Joshua scenes are a close second. It also has to be said that the creator kind of has the same ending as Rogue One, which is also, in a lot of ways, the same ending as Monsters. But while the ending of Rogue One is by far my favourite part of the film, I think the ending of Monsters hits the hardest of those three. For those who haven't seen it, Monsters opens with a truck full of soldiers responding to a distress call, one of them singing Ride of the Valkyries, because of course he is. They then get their asses absolutely handed to them by the creatures, and as civilians scream for help, the entire area is bombed via drone. The film then hard cuts to daytime and to Calder looking for Sam in the wreckage. He's been sent by her father to get her back to the US since the migration has started. The opening scene works like a spooky cold open of a horror movie. It sets up the stakes of the world, gives us a glimpse of the monsters, and now that we're following a much slower, ground-level story, we still know in the back of our heads how badly this could go wrong. Sam and Calder do eventually get back to the States, but everywhere has been evacuated, so they call for help, hold out, and the gas station they're hiding in is attacked by two monsters. Except the monsters don't really attack. They sort of dance, interacting like the animals that they are, and then they leave. But the help that Sam and Calder called for is still on the way, and one of the soldiers is singing Ride of the Valkyries. After coming face to face with the monsters, Sam is able to finally be honest about why she doesn't want to go home before she and Calder are pulled apart by the soldiers who've come to rescue them. The audience knows the opening scene is about to happen, that the soldiers attack the retreating monsters and that Calder and Sam don't get out of there alive. But Edwards doesn't show that scene again. He makes sure you know it's coming, but he ends the film at the end of the character's emotional journey rather than with their deaths. It's the human story that matters, not the monster movie they're living through. The creator ends 
like Rogue One, with ongoing hope for the Rebellion after the protagonist has given their life for the cause. And so the movie is about the cause, not the life that was given. I really wanted to like the creator, and I did like it a lot more the second time around. I like the ideas behind Edward's filmmaking process. The idea that the real world has the highest production value, and now that we have the cameras to get out there, we should be out in it instead of trying to recreate it on a soundstage like they did when film was new. I'm always excited to see original films in cinemas, and The Creator is a visually striking movie, and that's what Gareth Edwards wanted to make. My favourite cinema is very visually driven. It's not like a play, it's like a dream. It's just a pure emotion. The thing I really disagree with Gareth Edwards about is the idea that writing is the world's worst homework. I think writing is an intensely human act because at the core of all writing is empathy. Why does this character do what they do in this situation? And how can I make the audience understand and root for this person? In this crazy, out-of-reach sci-fi world, what makes these people, people? And writing a script is also a chance to try out every possibility for a film with basically no cost. It's a chance to fit all the pieces of the puzzle together and find not just the images you want to go out and capture, but also the purpose behind them. And while Edwards continues to think of writing as homework, I think his films are always going to have the same problems. Because a film isn't written on the page. It's written on the set, especially on Edward's set, where so much of the film is made in the process. And you can refine a story in the edit, but you're limited by the footage you have. And film is a narrative form, first and foremost. Even the most beautiful cinematography is there to support the story. And on Rogue One and Godzilla and the creator, Edward's visuals just can't quite make up for the fact that he didn't do his homework. Going Rogue is written and presented by Tansy Gardam, with editorial assistance from Charles O'Grady and Jamie Tram. Our music is by Shane Ivers of Silverman Sound Studios and Kevin McLeod of Incompetech. And our logo uses a photo by Annika Mickelson. I also wrote a very short review of the creator for The Big Issue. Go out and buy a copy. Not for my review, but for all the other really great articles and features. They're always good. Get it from your local vendor. They take cash or card. It's absolutely worth it. <laughs>